Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And this week on the Quarterdeck, we continue our journey with the reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq in 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy. And we discuss how Task Force Ripper is cleaning house at the Shat al-Bazarah and what they actually went through in order for them to become more successful in the mission that they had ahead of them. In our hero highlights, we're going to take a look at the story and the heroism of Private Joseph William Osborne, United States Marine Corps. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's, it's time for the gunny. Gunny, gunny, gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get in line right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarterdeck. I am your host, Miguel, the Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you, Phil. The Constitution of the United States. United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The quarter deck. With the start of the new year and, you know, having so much time now that I'm not working and dealing with everything with the house, all I've been doing is kind of sitting around and going through all the social media sites and everything that we have now today. And, and I was just kind of thinking about it. I'm like, man, when we were growing up, especially for me, my time frame in the 90s when I was still in high school, none of this was even there. Nothing, nothing existed. Man, I can remember that I want to say it was my, no, actually it was my junior year of high school when I was going down there to North Harden High School. In our homeroom class, we had just started to receive computers that were being put into the schools to allow students to be able to learn a little bit more and how to actually use computers and all that stuff. And man, to me, it seemed like such a new thing that I think the only thing that I took out of that whole entire class and when I was there in homeroom and then eventually took a keyboarding class to try to learn how to use Windows and stuff like that. But the one thing that actually stuck out to me was how to use Control-Alt-Delete to reset the whole computer. That was like the only thing that I actually retained in my brain housing group to understand how to use that stuff. And today, man, every kid in school now has a computer that is assigned to them when they go to school. And everything is done virtually over the computer as far as all the assignments go. They go to websites, they go to links, and they do all of their assignments and all those things on these digital devices or platforms and all those things. And all that kind of revolves around the social media, the Facebooks, the Twitter, the Instagrams, all of those. And as a business person or somebody that does some kind of business for other people like photography and videography, which is some of the things that I do, you know, you have to have a strong, high presence in the actual social media network out there just to be able to get more audience and more attention to your websites or whatever it may be that you have that is out there. And that's one of the main things that I kind of learned when I finished now my degree, um, my master's degree from the Academy of Art University is that, you know, how important that is, even, you know, for old dinosaurs and stuff like me that really have no idea how to do all that stuff. But you have to make yourself learn. You have to adapt. You have to learn how to use all these things because that is what the people are looking at nowadays, especially the younger crowd. They're the ones that are looking at all that stuff and making sure that you grab their attention to make sure that 
they are going to see whatever your product is that you're using and you are actually putting out there for them to actually purchase your products or whatever the heck that you're doing. But that's a bigger thing. So now getting back to the freaking high school time frame, man, we had none of that stuff. I remember that if you had a person that had a freaking cell phone, not even a cell phone really back then, it was more of a car phone. They had a car phone, man. You thought they were like the bomb. They were like big old drug dealers or something because they had a phone in their vehicle and they were actually able to use that phone while they were driving. So that was the big thing back then. That and those individuals that had beepers and pagers, man, right? Only drug dealers had pagers, right? <laughs> back then, that was our mentality and everything that we had. But looking at society now, everybody has a cell phone. And if you don't have a cell phone, it feels like you're naked and that you're missing something in your life. You know, I don't know. I guess if somebody gives me the challenge and they tell you, hey, you know, we're going to give you a couple thousand dollars for you to be able to live six months without a cell phone. Think about that for a second. How many of us could actually do that, live for six months without having a cell phone? Now, I think about that. And for me, I don't think it would be that difficult or that hard because all those times that we spent deployed down there to Iraq and Afghanistan, we had we had no phone, no cell phone or anything like that to be able to actually stay on track with the social media things or the things that were going on. So I think that would be a lot easier for a service member, a veteran to be able to deal with because they dealt with that before. So that's something that I think would be a lot easier and stuff for us to do. But with the social media, you know, I was going through my Facebook page and I was going through all the videos and pictures and everything that I have uploaded there since I originally got a Facebook account. And I looked at that. And when I created my Facebook account was in 2008. That was when I came back from my deployment to Iraq. I had just come back and that was back then when the MySpace was the big thing. And MySpace was kind of fading away a little bit because Facebook was there now and Facebook was the new big thing. And so everybody having to want to have an actual Facebook account. And, but I went through there and looked at all the pictures from when I first originally started the account there with Facebook. And I got a lot of memories that are on there. And those of you that, you know, I think everybody now has Facebook, so I can't even say that those of you that don't have it, but everybody goes through their Facebook page and you get memories and things like that, that you, that pop up for you. Well, I was going through there and I realized that I had a lot of videos from back then when I had originally started that. And I came in, I want to say came in, but I found some of the videos that I have from when I was deployed down there to Iraq. And so I was able to see a video that I had made from all the pictures and everything else that we had when we were down there and we were deployed. And back then, you know, I really didn't understand exactly how or what it actually takes in order for you to be able to edit a video and to actually be able to tell a story with that video and stuff. I mean, I did my best and everything else that I had. And if you guys remember, you had the movie maker in Windows and the computers that come with the computer that you can use to make slideshows and stuff like that. But man, I look at some of the videos that I make now, now that I fully understand how to do the edit and how to make sound a high priority in the videos that I make, it's a huge freaking difference. And that's one of the things that I think that I miss most about being in the Marine Corps is the fact that you got the opportunity to travel and to go out and see all kinds of different parts of the world. Now, me, a typical Marine, young Marine at that, whenever we deployments, the only thing that we cared about was going to port, going to the bars, getting drunk and coming back onto the ship. That was our priority. 
how I wish that I can go back in time and tell myself that, Hey, bring a camera, be able to take pictures of all those places and all those things that you've been to, because it's going to be something that you're going to want to look back at when you get older. So that's one of the main things that I think that I wish I would have did back then because you have so much, so much things that you're going to be able to use and show to your family so they can see the places that you have been to, the things that you have seen. And I think the most, I guess, impressive thing that you could say that I, where I've been to is that when we actually went down to Jordan doing some of the training that we did when we were on our Westpac back in 1999, we headed down out there to Jordan to do a training for a month. But we also came back and we were able to have a week of liberty once we were done with all of our training. And so we were able to take tours and everything. And one of the main tours that I took was to take the tour to head out there to the lost city of Petra. Now, I'd never been there. I've seen pictures and everything. The main thing that I had in my mind was that, okay, I remember, remember that I watched Indiana Jones and that was the actual place that they went to where the father was dying and he had to find the cup of eternal life and so forth and everything. So my mentality was that, hey, it's going to be exactly like that. And so walking through there, kind of picture this. You're walking through almost like a cave, but it's not fully enclosed. You walk through that little valley where they rode the horses through and you can see the sky and you go through there. And it's amazing because as soon as you walk in there, it's like you get this feeling walking through that area because you got rocks on both sides of you and it opens up. And there in the rocks, you see the building, the art in, on the building of the lost city of Petra. Now, to me, I figured, that okay, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to see some of the rooms and everything else that they had in the movie and all that. But no, that's not the case. You go in there and it's just kind of dug out just a little bit. It's not even a door or nothing. You go in there, but the main beauty of that place is actually seeing what they did in the rocks, the artwork, and how long that must have freaking taken for them to be able to do that stuff. But it's those things like that that, you know, that you want to have memories of and you would like to have pictures and things like that. Now, I did find a picture that I took way back in the day with those disposable little film cameras that you used to buy at the store all the time that I was able to see some of the pictures of me when I was down there in Petra that we were able to get a picture or two. Now, I was able to save, I think, one or two of them. You know, because after the fire that we had in the house, man, we lost a lot of pictures. We lost a lot of stuff that we had there for a long time. So I'm just glad that a couple of those things were able to survive. And I know that my wife was able to take some of her pictures and she was able to keep. And some of the mementos that we did have that we were able to keep that really didn't smell too much like smoke or they weren't damaged by all the water that was actually put in there by the fire department. But so it is important. So to, I guess the point that I'm making is that it's very important for you to keep your memories with you wherever you go, you know, the older you get in life, the more you're going to want to be able to tell the stories of the things that you did. And especially us in the military, we get to travel a lot and we get to go everywhere for free and, you know, take those ships, take the planes, whatever, and be able to enjoy those things out there that we're ever going to be share with our families and just make, want to make sure that we have the videos, the photos. And today with social media, that makes it so much easier to you to be able to save all these things and take a look at your Facebook page. Check out the memories that pops up there once in a while. You'll be surprised. I've been looking at those things. It backs up to 10 years today. The things that I was doing back in 10 years. And oh my goodness. Some of the things that I see my son when he was maybe one year old. The things that he was doing. Wife and I when we first met each other down there in Oklahoma. Going through the mountains at the at the reserve down there in, uh, in Oklahoma and Lawton. 
some of the things that you can remember all that. So always take a look at that, take advantage of that and enjoy everything that we have nowadays because things are so much different than we had back in the day. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel Signs Photography. Miguel Signs is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings, family portraits, and special events. With years of experience and a creative eye, Miguel Signs will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come. Whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album, a unique family portrait, or a professional headshot for your business, Miguel Signs Photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life. From the initial consultation to the final product, Miguel Signs will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Signs Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel Signs Photography. Visit Miguel Signs Photography online at miguelsignsphotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. The 1st Marine Division is making their way through Iraq, and it's just amazing how fast everything went. And, you know, everybody knows that has been following me along since we started this journey and reading about the book here. You guys know that I was there during the same time that this book took place. So it's very, very unique and very close to me to be able to actually read everything that happened around the same time that I was there. And, you know, speaking to a lot of other Marines that were actually there, they can recall the things that they're talking about and the things what we were experiencing when we were there in country, because this is something that all of us, everything was new to everybody. Nobody had gone through this kind of situation or any kind of a combat environment before. So this was new to everybody. This was an experience that all of us were experiencing together for the very first time, because, you know, like we talked about before, there was only a handful of individuals that were actually still there on active duty that participated in the initial war when they went to liberate Kuwait from Iraq, when they had gone into there and actually tried to take over that country. So uh, Desert Storm was the last time that there was any kind of big conflict like that, and not too many Marines were still around from that time frame. So again, this was all very new for us, but now that the division was going through Iraq, now, you know, things were going fast. And so let's take a look at, you know, Ripper, Task Force Ripper, and everything that they did as they were going through there, and especially through Shad al-Bar Shah that they were going through right now. Although the division's objectives were secured, the Iraqis that had fled into the Al-Bazara urban area still had fight left in them. Repeatedly, they attempted to sortie across the Shah Al-Bazara bridges and counterattack the Marines. Through the morning of 22 March, RCT-7 continued to block the bridges over the Shah Al-Bazara, meeting sporadic resistance and periodic poorly organized counterattacks by uniformed and non-uniformed enemy forces. 1st Tank Battalion and 3-4 were continuing to use indirect and direct fire against targets on both sides of the waterway. Battle damage reports from the morning included at least two artillery pieces and one BMP destroyed. 
although many of the Iraqis conscripts had fled the previous day. It was clear that many of the remaining enemy hardliners were willing to fight to the death. Technical vehicles, T-55s, and preliminary fighters in civilian clothes continued to attack Tiger's lead element, its headquarters and support areas. With the fight continuing and its units spread across its zone, Tiger had not yet consolidated since crossing the line of departure. The combat trains, command groups, and tow platoons had co-located at a crossroads near Azabrir. Shortly after staging at this location, the Marines in the vicinity of the command group heard the zip of an anti-tank missile and an M88 tank retriever was locked by a blast. Three Marines had been wounded. Master Gunnery Sergeant Guadalupe Donegan, Sergeant Eric Percy, and Lance Corporal Philip Rugg. Captain Ruben Martinez, the 1st Tank Battalion S4, recalls. As I completed shaving... I saw an RPG smoke trail out of the corner of my eye, originating from about 175 meters to the south of the M88. As I turned to look at the M88, I saw Sergeant Percy standing in the vehicle commander's cupola. The explosion rocked the M88, causing a fireball to come out of the vehicle and smoke to begin billowing from the vehicle. Corporal Rugg, a crew member, began to exit the M88 standing just outside the hatch and turned around to Sergeant Percy to ask what happened. Sergeant Percy shouted that he couldn't see. I could see Corporal Rugg's lower leg badly injured and many bleeding lacerations. Corporal Rugg then jumped down from the vehicle, obviously not realizing the extent of his wounds. He leaned on his feet and immediately fell over yelling, oh, my legs. I could hear sporadic small arms fire being fired at the position and being returned by the Marines. After washing Sergeant Percy's eyes out with water, I called in the contact report and the number of Marines injured. On the radio, I observed Sergeant Jones pulling Master Gunnery Sergeant Danyon's limpy body out of the burning M88, assisted by Corporal Rodriguez. We will later learn that the Chief Lugo was inside the M88 passing the Master Gunnery Sergeant out of the vehicle. All three injured Marines were consolidated near a BAS vehicle and prepared for evacuation. Sergeant Jones returned and entered the burning M88 to remove AT-4 missiles that might have gone off due to the heat. Marines from the Bravo Command and combat train secured a field on the west side of the AA for use of a landing zone. Forward at the center of Al-Basra Bridge, Lima Company 3-4, attached to 1st Tank Battalion, assessed enemy casualties had reached 100 fighters killed but it had encountered only feeble mounted counterattacks. This was about to change. Just as the command group situation began to stabilize, Lima reported observing numerous BMPs and T-55s on the far side of the bridge, apparently preparing to attack. Delta Company first tanks under Captain Greg Poland relieve Lima Company at the bridge a four-man British team who had intended to cross onto the Al-Bazara now realized the bridge was too hot. Instead, they co-located with the Delta Company commander providing intelligence from sources within the city. Delta's company, Red Platoon, was maintaining the blocking position awaiting the Iraqi attack, which soon came. An apparent suicide charge by a technical with a mounted machine gun and two beat-up sport utility vehicles, was engaged 
and destroyed approximately 500 meters from the platoon's position. The Red Platoon Commander, Lieutenant Vincent Hogan's, recalls, Any illusions of keeping friendlies clear of the tank main gun surface danger zones during this war quickly evaporated as the enemy was mixed in throughout the battalion's elements. The Marines of the command group, combat trains, and tow platoon immediately engaged the enemy and cleared buildings in the area with tank main gunfire. Captain Martinez and Major Keith completed a coordination for their air Kazivak for the injured crew of the M88, and the choppers were on deck within minutes of being called. We were about half an hour into the blocking mission, and it had calmed down considerably. We first observed three vehicles when they stopped about 1,500 meters to our front. The lead vehicle was clearly an MG-mounted technical. As we went to Redcon 1, we observed 10 to 12 armored personnel on the technical. The gunner put on a ski mask. Suddenly, we're hauling ass towards our position. Red 2 shouted, RPG, RPG, seeing one passenger lift an RPG out of the vehicle bed. We engaged with Cokes and a 50 caliber machine gun. In a minute or so, two vehicles were burning, with one remaining on the road. No one was moving. A couple of minutes later, people started picking up weapons scattered from the technical. We continued to engage. The whole engagement lasted maybe 10 minutes. After the fight, some of the gunners were able to observe through their power sides TV, slowly taped on the side of the SUVs. I decided to inform the S2 about this potentially useful enemy vehicle marking. It didn't even occur to any of us that journalists would try to participate in an Iraqi suicide charge. Upon completion of the engagement, it was ascertained that two trailer SUVs were in fact foreign journalists from the UK who had participated in a charge against the US blocking position. Whether this participation was voluntary in pursuit of a good story or against their will at gunpoint was never determined. Their resulting death was an unfortunate accident of war. Journalists intermingled with the enemy's combatant were not identified as non-combatants until after the enemy attack had been repulsed. Subsequent investigations confirmed that the actions of Delta Company were consistent with the established rules of engagement. This was scant solace to the families of the journalists or to the Marines who deeply regretted any non-combatant casualties. The unfortunate action involving the journalists was one of the many disorganized attempts by the enemy to cross the bridges. Those that tried were quickly and ruthlessly reduced. Gunnery Sergeant Stephen Heath, Delta Company 1st Tanks Battalion, describes another action. I saw two technical vehicles come across the bridge with a T-55 on the near side of the bridge. About 2,700 meters away, the vehicles had formed a wedge with the tank at its lead. Two technicals flanking. We saw them at an angle. The tank had guys riding all over it, World War II style. Our first shot, Sabot, went through the chest of the tank rider and destroyed the technical on the far side. The tank stopped and everyone jumped off. I fired the second shot through a berm. In front of the tank, a hole shot. Then a guy in black jumped into the driver's hole and started it. There was just enough time to see the white puff as the engine started and the tank began to move. Red 3 put a shot square into the turret, causing immediate secondaries good 
section, gunnery. It was almost like the Iraqis tried to adapt Soviet tactics to technicals like a combat recon patrol. It wasn't working out too well for them. Tiger used air to continue to hammer forces on the other side of the bridges. Captain Anthony Morlat, Delta Company's fact, recalls the response of one Cobra pilot when asked for BDAs. As too much to get an accurate count on. According to the British teams working with Tiger, receiving battle damage via a cell phone. 8 to 10 tanks, 20 to 30 trucks, SUVs, and 3 APCs were destroyed in these airstrikes. Also, the morning of 22 March, first tanks captured a group of Iraqi soldiers dressed in civilian's clothes, one of whom was alleged to be the commanding general of the 51st Mechanized Division. This was the first of many times the commander of the 51st was reportedly captured. As the confusing Iraqi rank structure and multiple regime agencies on the battlefield resulted in a large number of captured Iraqi general officers. Among this group's possessions were weapons and uniforms in bags, identifying them as Republican guardsmen, and a white powder substance in a sealed bag with instructions in Arabic for the employment of anthrax. A sensitive site exploitation team was brought in to test the contents. Although tests revealed the powder was not anthrax, RCT-7 remained vigilant and prepared to encounter any weapons of mass destruction. As 1st Tank's Battalion began its displacement to the north, mortar rounds began to fall onto their position. Lieutenant Popelski and his tow platoon, while covering the command's group move, were attacked by an RPG team. The vehicles closest to the attacker, a Humvee, a tow variant vehicle, responded with the only weapon system available, a tow missile. The missile was erratic, but successfully scared the attackers off. The tow platoon quickly attacked south and destroyed several additional weapon caches. Upon relief by the UK's 7th Armored Brigade, Tiger moved to its assembly area in preparation for the march west. Upon arrival to the AA, all battalion elements refueled. Upon arrival in the AA, all battalion elements refueled and began catching what sleep they could. The battle to isolate Al-Barshaw was largely concluded by midway on 22 March. At BIA, the focus for 3-4 shifted to logistical operations and the RIP, which was planned to take immediately after the Marines secured the area. The 1st Fuselers of the 7th Armored Brigade, 1st UK Division, wasted no time in settling into positions and making the transition. Elements of 3-4 consolidated in the vicinity of RCT-7's main CP and conducted resupply operations throughout the night in the preparation for movement. By this time, fatigue began to play a dominating role. As exhaustion from the over two days of continuous combat operations made the relatively simple task of road marches, link-ups, and refueling operations very difficult. It took Kilo Company, for example, many additional and frustrating hours in a black night to navigate through the British defenses in BIA and find the battalion's resupply point. The Marines were very ready to settle into the assembly area to rest and refit. Many enemy vehicles were destroyed and personnel were captured during the first operation. In the largest capture of the day, First Lieutenant John Dyer accepted the surrender of 64 EPWs at a location near the main CP where suspected rocket fire had come from. 
The party was surprised when one of the vehicles that was found at the location was an armored personnel carrier with a red crescent symbol painted on it, the Iraqis equivalent to the Red Cross, but with an 82-millimeter mortar mounted and ready to fire in the back. As anticipated, Marines would encounter this tactic repeatedly in the coming weeks. Schools, mosques, and hospitals were some of the protected statuses sites used to store vast quantities of ammunition and weapons. In the garrisons of the Iraqi RA, Marines found functional enemy equipment simply abandoned. RCT-7 had embedded a British Army Major Liaison Officer, Major Andy Flay, into its staff in late February to facilitate coordination with the 7th Armored Brigade and the 1st UK Division, also known as Desert Rats. The writ began to close first light as the 7th Brigade staff co-located its CP with Ripper Main to ensure coordination. As with the 7th RHA and the 3rd RHA was already in their firing positions and seamlessly picking up the fight where 11th Marines left it. Additionally, British signals intelligence units were already in place, having gained an appreciation of the signals environment by crossing the line of departure with Marines radio department elements. The rip of units in the RCT-7 zone took place from the south to the north and then west to east. The Black Watch Regiment assumed 3-7's position at the Shubaya Barracks and 1-7's positions in az Zabrir. The Royal Fulishers Regiment relieved 3-4 at BIA. The rip took most of the day to complete, with RCT-7 units one by one pushing west and set up a new AA. By 1948 Zulu hour, the Brits and the TF Ripper completed the relief in place, and RCT-7 was on the move. CSSC-117 established RRPs for each of the battalions as they withdrew towards Highway 8. Once replenished, RCT-7 consolidated a Technical Assembly Area 7, or TAA-7, and prepared to follow the rest of the division movement west along Highway 8 towards Anazaria. What a... Fight. And let me tell you guys, when they're talking about that the Marines were ready to settle in and take a nap and catch up on sleep, man, they ain't lying. Those few days from the initial attack when we crossed the border and headed into the actual main fight that we were seeing ourselves into, we had no sleep. So imagine yourself not sleeping for two, almost three days of a lack of sleep, maybe catching five minutes here, five minutes there. And I got to say, it's basically because I can remember that, you know, people telling me, hey, go get some sleep, get some rest. We got to watch. But it's difficult. It's not as easy as you may think for you to actually want to just leave and go to sleep because, you know, it, to me, it was a big issue because I wanted to ensure that everything was taken care of and the Marines were being able to do whatever they needed to do. So to me, it was more important for me to allow them to catch up on sleep than me, which later on, once we headed in the outskirts of Baghdad, you know, that was able to change because we were in a secure location that we were able to provide our own security because there was no enemy around us. And this allowed us to be able to actually catch up on all of our sleep and for us to be able to, you know, go ahead and make sure that we were going to be very well taken care of because we had all that security around us. And even just getting maybe 15, 20 minutes of sleep during that time, man, it, it made a huge difference. I guess you could say that we all took power naps 
in order to allow us to continue to progress and be able to handle ourselves and do the things that we needed to do. Because when, you know, whenever you are not getting enough sleep or you've been up for many hours, you start to not function as properly as you can. And that started to become a little bit of an issue for us because we were just constantly moving and shooting and moving and shooting. So we had to make sure that, you know, we did get our sleep eventually. So during that time, that's when all of us were able to catch up after we refueled, we resupplied, and we were able to be there for a little bit or a couple of hours for all of us to be able to catch up on a little bit of sleep. And I got to tell you guys, that made a huge of a difference for us to ensure that we were ready to go for the next couple of days. I think that's what actually allowed, you know, Task Force Ripper to be able to do what they did in their fight as they were going through. They're taking those pop shots and everything because that's all they did. They were taking the pop shots and they were trying to find different ways to be able to infiltrate the Marine units that were out there, which they were not able to because they were already prepared and waiting, ready for the Iraqi army to make an attempt to attack them. Hero, Hero highlight. highlight. Private Joseph William Osborne was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for sacrificing his life to save his comrades on Tanan in the Marina's 30 July. 1944. Joseph Osborne was born in Heron, Illinois, 24 October 1919. He attended grammar school in Buckner, Illinois, and subsequently became a trip rider in the mines of the old Ben Cole Corporation in West Frankfort, Illinois. He enlisted in the Marine Corps 30 October 1943. He died after hurling himself on a live hand grenade, thus saving the lives of four companions. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity, he was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. The destroyer Osborne was commissioned on 5 March 1946 at the Boston Naval Shipyard by Private Osborne's widow. The ship had been christened by Mrs. Osborne 22 December 1945 at the Bath Ironworks, Bath, Maine. Private Osborne was initially buried in Tanan Marina's Island, but later his remains were re-entered into the National Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. The Quarterdeck. Those of us that were there on the ground back in Iraq in 2003 with the division know and understand how fast-paced and how quickly the days flew by when you're there. And it's amazingly, because just like Task Force Ripper, in the portion of our book that we read today, they were making progress so fast, and the United Kingdom units were relieving the units from the 1st Marine Division so quickly that it just made it go by so fast, and the days were blurs. I know to me it was blurry. It was a blurry time because before you knew it, so many hours had gone by, you never really determined exactly how many days had gone by. And as you're going to see later on, you know, especially with the big giant dust storm and rain that we're going to have here in the next couple of days, it is amazingly how Marines work and how all these military units from the, all the coalition forces that were there with the first Marine divisions work together so well. And it's just a great example on how those things worked and how the division continued to work great. So next week, we're going to continue reading on that and, and learn a little bit more of what the division has been up to and what they're going to be doing in order to make themselves very successful. 
in our hero highlights, we talked about private Joseph William Osborne and what he did to earn himself that congressional medal of honor. And just like many, many other Marines that we've already discussed and we talked about so many of them threw themselves on top of a grenade in order to save those Marines that were around them without even thinking about it. And, you know, it still surprised me till today, the way that the Marines are, that they care more about the lives of those around them than of themselves. And he's just another example of that, that he did that as well. And that action, what he did that day, is what earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor. A quick update for everybody. Our numbers are growing more and more every single week. So continue to share the podcast with everybody else that's around there for you on Facebook, whatever. Remember to go to our Facebook page, The Quarterdeck with Gunny Signs on Facebook. Comments, questions, or even if you are interested in being a guest on the podcast, let us know and we'll go ahead and schedule a time for you to be on here and we can go ahead and discuss this whole entire time in Iraq or whatever you may have, or maybe your Marine Corps story, some of the stories that you have. Those of you that have some unique stories of you being in the Marine Corps, the barracks, barracks life, whatever it may be, let me know so we can go ahead and talk about those on here. And hey, hey, maybe it might bring back some memories for me and I can share some of the stories that we had in the barracks while I was down there still on board Camp Pendleton, California. So again, I want you guys to ensure that you have a great week. Enjoy today. Have an awesome time with your family this weekend because this month is almost over with. And for our family, the next month is going to be very, very busy because it's our birthday month, as we call it. And we'll get to that once we get into it next month. So until next week, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get out the box! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.